My topic this evening is maturity in prayer. And my text is the first verse of Psalm 62, which we read together. For God alone, my soul in silence waits. From him comes my salvation. Psalm 62 is my favorite psalm. So I chose it for our continuing series on the psalms. And my favorite verse in this psalm is the first verse, my text. For God alone, my soul in silence waits. From him comes my salvation. Those of you who listen carefully may have noticed that I have changed the word order. The ESV, which is the Bible translation we use here, reads, my soul waits in silence. But if you change the word order to my soul in silence waits, the opening phrase of this verse has the sonority and urgency of Shakespeare because it is in iambic pentameter meter. That is five units of short, long, short, long. For God alone, my soul in silence waits. With the parallelism typical of the Psalms, the second phrase, from him comes my salvation, elaborates the meaning of the first, giving a reason for it. The psalmist waits in silence for God alone because God alone can save him. But this is not a lecture on Hebrew poetry, which I'm not qualified to give, but a sermon suggesting maturity in prayer. And what, you may ask, does this beautiful verse have to do with maturity in prayer? Everything. My contention is that all the other forms of prayer, confession, petition, intercession, lamentation, praise, thanksgiving, are meant to lead us to silent expectancy, waiting on the Lord for his salvation. And further, I contend that this awareness, this consciousness, this silent expectant waiting can be ours throughout the day, even when we are not verbalizing prayers. Now, this state of silent expectancy focused on God sounds both deeply saintly and utterly unobtainable for us at first hearing. Perhaps at the conclusion of a strenuous seven-day retreat, we might possibly wait in silence for a time. But as a daily experience, it may seem far beyond us. In fact, if we consider the psalm in its entirety, we are given some important help in reaching this prayer experience. The first help is to realize that it is God alone for whom we are waiting. He is the end and purpose and meaning and ground of our lives. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses reminds Israel that the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, is not a tribal deity among many other gods. He is the only God, as shown by his power to rescue Israel from slavery in one nation, Egypt, and to drive out other nations from the land that he had promised them, Canaan. 
and settle them in it. Verse 39 sums it up. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. From Matthew chapter 4, we heard of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. He bested Satan three rounds to zero because he understood prayerfully that God alone is his salvation. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He said, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And all three times he is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Our prayer will not mature as long as we bring to it divided loyalties, as long as we are waiting when we go to prayer for God and for other things as well. God and our addictions. God and our career ambitions. God and our political ideology. God and our social status. God and the good opinions of others on which we are deeply dependent. Now, if salvation is our need, it is God alone for whom we are waiting. And it is our soul that is waiting in silence for God, not our bodies and not our minds. Now, in the Bible, soul has been understood in various ways. Sometimes it refers simply to the breath of life itself in a person or sometimes as the incorporeal essence of a man or woman. But soul may also be understood, and I think it's, its meaning here in Psalm 62 and verse 1, as that part of us that can know God, who is a spiritual being, and who can experience reconciliation and sanctification from God. The body has physical limits, the mind, however powerful and creative, is subject to confusion and prejudice and distraction. But our souls, our spiritual receptors, can attach to God in a constant way. That is why St. Paul dares to urge us to pray constantly and, while, and why mature prayer is not limited to 20 minutes of quiet time a day. It is the soul that can wait steadily for God and for God alone. For he, as the restatement of our text in verses 5 through 7 of the psalm affirms, is our rock, our fortress, our refuge, as well as our salvation. A second help towards maturity in prayer comes in verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. If silent, expectant waiting is the end and goal of prayer, the constant pouring out of our hearts as we begin to entrust all situations to God is a prerequisite for it. We should not, we dare not limit ourselves to a tidy prayer list with a few major concerns that we have and a well-groomed list of friends or family members in serious need 
for whom we intercede. You're late for an appointment and need to find a parking space fast. Pray. A friend has made a stinging remark about your new tie-dye shirt and you want to hit back verbally. Pray. You're walking in a lonely street at night and feeling anxious. Pray. You see a tired woman with a sad face across from you on the tee. Pray. You're able to receive, you're about to receive the questions for a test important to your career advancement. Pray. You're appalled by the situation of Syrian refugees as pictured in the news. Pray. By praying, you are entrusting these situations to the Lord. And the Lord is not some elderly relative who has limited time and energy and must be protected from your profanity and your jealous thoughts and your unwholesome fantasies so that you must present your best self to the Lord in prayer. And if your best self is not available, you don't pray. No. Come to him angry and profane, jealous and unfulfilled, confused and fed up. He can take it. He will take it. And you will experience catharsis, a changed heart, as you trust him with your burdens and your sins. This is why Peter in 1 Peter 5 and verse 7 counsels, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And trust God rather than compulsion, says the psalm. Extortion and robbery and all other kinds of cheating are out. Trust God rather than idolizing the poor, as Marxism does with the proletariat or envying and emulating the rich. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. A third help toward maturity in prayer is to realize how much the evil one opposes you in this endeavor. The last thing Satan wants is for you to reach a place of silent, soulful waiting on God alone. This is how Jesus defeated him in his temptation. And Satan doesn't want it to happen with you. Now verses 3 and 4 of the psalm apparently refer to the psalmist's human enemies who attack and degrade him with falsehoods and hypocritical blessings. But as St. Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So I think these verses in Psalm 62 may also be understood to condemn our oldest and most dangerous enemy, one who takes advantage of our weaknesses and sees to it that our needs and faults are concealed by flattery. Satan wants you too busy to pray. Satan wants you bored and mechanical in your prayer life, doubting and discouraged when God doesn't provide what you want and when you want it. And your answer to Satan must be, for God alone, my soul in silence waits. From him comes my salvation. 
And 1 Peter chapter 5 counsels, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Don't let it be you. The last two verses of Psalm 62 provide a basis for all that has gone before and answer emphatically the honest question, why should my soul wait in silence for God alone? God has spoken to the psalmist, and the psalmist receives God's word as comprising two assertions, that power belongs to God and that steadfast love characterizes his use of that power. If God were powerful but unloving, we would flee from him, not wait for him. If he were loving but not all-powerful, we would wait perhaps for companionship, but not dare hope for salvation. But God is both powerful and loving, says the psalmist. And so our souls can wait constantly on him in the silence of expectant contemplation and in the trust that he will provide for us what we need in whatever the work to which he has called us. Once God has spoken, concludes the psalm, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. This brings maturity in our prayer life. And we approach it as we realize that it must be God alone for whom we wait. That we prepare for this waiting by pouring out our hearts at all times. And that this maturation will always and relentlessly be opposed by the evil one. Nonetheless, with the psalmist we say, for God alone, my soul in silence waits. From him comes my salvation. Let us say it together. For God alone, my soul in silence waits. From him comes my salvation. Amen.